tonight inflation cools some more and debt ceiling talks yep they go nowhere you're listening to simply money presented by allworth financial i'm steve sprovac along with steve ruby okay ruby let's start with the inflation data from april that came out this morning no real surprises but not exactly what we were hoping for yeah, I mean, it started out with headline inflation, and that did ease 4.9% in April, which is because of the economy showing signs of cooling. Yeah, uh, We're reaching for that 2% target, so there's still some some headway we, in front we, of us. Yeah, we, we, we got a ways to go. But, you know, it's, it's better than last summer. It was over 9%. Yeah. So we've come down a heck of a long way. But, you know, here's the thing that bothers me. Okay, the numbers come out, market goes up drastically and then goes down mm -hmm. uh, you know it's it's almost as if all right we wanted to see numbers all right these are pretty good but you know what as we dive into it more not quite what we were hoping for I, I i think investors were really expecting to see even lower numbers but there's a lag time i i mean the federal reserve just last week did another increase of a quarter of a yes. percent. Mm -hmm. And if it takes six, seven, eight months for a, an increase in interest rates to work its way through the economy and show up as lower inflation, we got six or eight months to go. I, I mean, this is not immediate. That's why not seeing it move up will have that positive effect on the markets. Yeah. That's that's obviously good news is good news type territory. We've been saying good news is bad news for a while. Bad <laughs> news is good news. And and Andy, chief investment officer of Allworth Financial, he 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 ended his uh, segment on on Monday this week with saying, you know, with, with the interest rates potentially potentially stopping, yeah. potentially yeah. stopping. Uh, we may move into territory here where good news is good news once again. Yeah. So, so the numbers. I mean, here's what it boiled down to: the the uh, headline inflation rate. Okay, dropped from five percent to four point nine percent for last month. That's mm -hmm. year over year. Core inflation also dropped. That's where you cut out. And it's not that we don't use gas or eat food. It's just those are real volatile components, and, and you want to get rid of you know these huge swings and see what the trend is. And same thing, core dropped a tenth of a percent, not quite as much as, you know, people were hoping for, but it's still a step in the right direction. Yeah. And again, core inflation, economists see core inflation as a better predictor than headline inflation right. because of the volatility of energy and food prices. Uh, one, one of the sticking points, though, at this point is, is shelter. Yeah. So shelter is extremely expensive right now. And that has an additional lag time on top of it, too, because well, it takes a while for mortgage applications to process rental exactly. applications sometimes. So that's that's a sticking point that there's some optimism that th th those numbers are going to continue to fall just like the rest. I, I, I don't see any big surprises. I mean, you want to talk lag times. If you're going to sign a lease and, and rent an apartment or rent a house, it's generally a one-year lease. Mm -hmm. So by definition, that's a one-year lag time. So I, I I see that being the last uh, domino to fall, but the dominoes are slowly falling. I, I don't see a big change in inflation all of a sudden heating up again. It's just not coming down as quickly as the optimists would like it. Yeah. To, to me, that's not a problem. No, it's not, because again, we're trending in the right direction, which is why the markets have you know, seen these bumps, even though it wasn't a big dip in inflation, but we're talking a tenth of 1%. Yeah. It's not trending up. It is trending down. 
You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Steve Ruby. And okay, we got the inflation numbers uh, in today. Better, but not as good as hoped. Um, Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that as a win. Um, But let's talk about something that's a little bit more serious. The debt ceiling. (laughs) The debt ceiling. And and this is something that, you know what, I'm usually the voice that says, oh, don't believe everything you hear on cable TV. It's not as bad as some of those guys are saying. This could be bad. It it could be. I mean, yesterday, Biden and and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they they did, you know, sit in the White House and and have a meeting. And of course, um, no surprise here, they accomplished absolutely nothing. Yeah. That's disappointing. I, I Maybe it's because I'm I'm a little younger. I still have that optimism, that hope that oh, they're I'll, going. I'll break that down. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, just just being alive for a couple more decades will break that down, I guess. But you know, we, we've never defaulted right. on, on on our debt before, right. and and if we do, it's absolutely catastrophic. Oh, it so is. All the yeah. stuff you're seeing out there, it is correct to an extent. Yeah. If if we default, and and I'm hopeful that we're going to come to uh, an agreement on both sides of the aisle and, and, and they're going to take action. All right. So, so let, let me give you a hypothetical. Sure. Okay. You're married. Okay. And, and I'm sure your wife is great with money, but let's just say she's got a credit card that's in your name with a $15,000 credit limit. And she's the only person using that credit card and she ran it to the max. I don't like this hypothetical. Steve. Hang on. I'm not done. Yet. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's get worse. So, <laughs> so, she comes to you and, and says, hey, sorry, I maxed it out, but there's this $500 pair of shoes that I've got to have. I need you to call a credit card company and increase the credit limit. Would you say, sure, why not? Or would you say, hey, maybe let's talk about this and let's let's talk about do you really need those shoes or maybe there's a $100 pair of shoes that would be better. Or the shoes you already bought. Okay. Yeah. This is where we're at mm-hmm. with, with, with this it. country, okay? And 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 you might only be making the minimum payments. So, okay, the national debt, it's a big number. And once you get into, you know, billions and trillions, I don't think anybody has a real good handle on, okay, is that bad? Is it good? It's just a big number. I have no concept of what uh, $34 trillion is or whatever the current national debt is. But I, I'm going to give you some some numbers. And, and here's why we do have to address, and this is not political, we do have to address the growth, the growth in the national debt. Mm-hmm. The highest, uh, treated as a percentage of gross domestic product, okay? If you take a look at how big the economy is in the United States, okay, the worst we've ever been with national debt was after World War II, major world war. Which okay? makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So in 1946, yes, our debt ballooned in this country to 119% of GDP, of gross domestic product. Prior to that, it was normally 30 40%. Okay, politicians got together, war's over, and let's start bringing the national debt down. And they succeeded over the next 10, 15 years after World War II to get the national debt down to 30 to 40% of GDP. That's when you were in high school, right? Um, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> okay. So, so okay, even during the Reagan years, when Reagan cut taxes and everybody was saying, oh, you know, this is voodoo economics. You can't cut taxes and still expect the, the de- national deficit to, to stay where it is. We were between 30 and 40% of GDP with our national debt. We are back up 
not just to 119. We're back up to about 123 percent. Which is the worst it's ever been. Yeah, we have never had more national debt as a percentage of the economy as we've got now. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you cannot say... Um, yeah, no, I don't don't put this national debt as as a hostage. You just have to increase the debt ceiling. Just do it. I think we have to pay attention to. All right, maybe we need to cut spending, or at least to cut the growth in spending a little bit to get the national and, and, debt under control because it it may be out of control. And that's precisely the argument that's happening. House Republicans they yeah. they demand a, a deep spending deep spending cuts in exchange yeah. for raising the debt ceiling. Yeah. Whereas over the past many administrations, arbitrarily, that debt ceiling has just been they just raised, raised it. Yeah, yeah. So at some point, with the the ratio that that Steve's talking about here being higher than it was post World War II, yeah, I agree that action needs to happen. Yeah, and I'm still hopeful that it will. And and everybody knows, and I'm talking about everybody in Congress knows, it has to be fixed. It has it to be accomplished. They cannot afford to let this country to go into default. It's it's a super high stakes game of chicken is mm-hmm. what it boils down to. And, and they're still trying to score political points. Here's the good news out of yesterday. The good news is they met. They didn't accomplish anything, but they agreed to meet again Friday. And in the meantime, over the next couple of days, staffers are getting together to negotiate. And actually having conversations. Well, at least they're talking. Yeah. Okay. Communication is the first step to solving problems. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say Biden, he, he did come out and say that, you know, we, we should expect some additional politics, posturing, gamesman, gamesmanship. Yeah. Um, that I don't like that part at all. Because no, they're that's still what, posturing. That's yeah. what creates the noisy headlines yep. that, that can be risky yep. to people's uh, entire financial future. Okay. So, so let's... So this happened in 2011, and people have forgotten about this, but it happened in 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, Joe Biden happened to be the vice president, happened to be right in the middle of the negotiations when we were in the exact same situation. And dynamics were the same. Here's what happened in 2011, okay? The, the, um, the, The parties that were talking couldn't put a deal together, so the Senate and House each on, on their own negotiated and they put a deal together and put it on President Obama's desk. And he really didn't have any choice at that point because we were within 72 hours of a default and just getting that close to a default and putting a deal together, um, just getting that close caused the first downgrade of U.S. debt in history. What does that mean? Is that a big deal? Well, it means you pay more interest. Mm -hmm. It's just like if your credit score is low, if you go out for a mortgage, you're going to have a higher interest rate. You're going to have to pay. Same thing for this country. And that's what worries me. The other thing that happened is stocks nosedived as we got closer and closer to the the debt ceiling standoff, to being out of time for extraordinary measures. Uh, The S&P 500 dropped 19% over the course of a couple of weeks. Now they put the deal together and it went right back up. But it caused a lot of volatility in investments. So how should we react? Well, you know, that's the point. If you reacted in 2011, if you just cashed out and said, wow, if they're if they're going into default, I need to sit on the sidelines of cash. By the time you decided to get back in, it was probably too late. Exactly. Because when you see a rebound off of a sudden drop, usually it's a sudden rise when whatever the news that didn't go bad 
um, cause markets to go back up. Um, you know, that's market timing. And, and you're going to miss some of the big swings if you do that. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what will happen for sure, other than the fact that, and, and I've used this saying before, and I'm going to continue to use it because I like What's it. What's that? The stock market is like walking up the stairs while playing with a yo-yo. Okay. Yeah. The, the the noise that we hear, the volatility that is on the horizon, it will stay there for the rest of our lives. Yeah. But if you keep walking up those stairs, you're going to be better off than where you started. So when you listen to the noise and you make emotional reactions to yeah. and decisions. Which sound reasonable. It they seems sound real reasonable, reasonable at the time. The time. There's yeah. always, you know, depending on what you're looking at, there's always reasons to to sell and, and, and not be in the market, be on the sidelines and wait till things are better. Yeah. But if you keep looking at those same same headlines, the things will never appear to be better. Yeah, yeah. So just I, focus on the long term. Th this sounds weird, but I, I think volatility should be your friend, okay? Especially if you've got some money on the sidelines. If there's a dip in prices or a substantial downturn in prices and you've got money that's only, you know, making, you know, piddly amounts of interest at, at the bank that is long-term money that you can invest for more than two or three years, you could always use that to your advantage. Conversely, if you're still saving, if you're still yeah. working and you have your 401k and you're putting in contributions from your paycheck and your employer is matching those contributions, volatility is your friend because it gives you an opportunity to buy low. Here's the all worth advice. The headlines are really noisy right now. Do not make any financial decisions based on fear. Coming up next, the lessons to learn from the really, really rich. And we're talking about their mistakes. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. Hey, if you can't listen to Simply Money every night, just get our daily podcast. You can listen to it the morning after we air while you're commuting, at the gym, whatever you're doing. And if you've got some buddies that can use some financial advice, tell them too. Just search Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643. Dividend stocks, Roth conversions, more. It's our Ask the Advisor segment coming up. Okay, so Ruby, we've been talking about crypto an awful lot over the past year. We've warned people not to make it part of their portfolio. Why? Because there's not a lot of regulation and a whole lot of questions. Now we've got some studies proving so. Yeah, not a lot of history of success, but a study done by the Pew Research Center. This was based on a poll of about 11,000 uh, U.S. adults. Or, yeah, this is not a small sample size. Yeah, and this is just last quarter. 75% of the respondees who say they've heard of cryptocurrency are not confident in the current ways to invest in it, trade with it, or or even spend it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is good. By the way, Pew Research Center, that's one of the real ones. This is not one of those, you know, headline, you know, meme type things. Mm -hmm. um, they do some some hardcore research. And and I was kind of encouraged by this because there is some real risk in, in uh, cryptocurrency. And it seems to me the vast majority of people feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, recent revelations, that is, in uh, corporate mismanagement, think, thinking about uh, FTX. Oh, yeah. Sammy yeah. Boy, your buddy Sam yeah. Bankman-Fried and all of the lawsuits there. Uh, a lot of negative publicity, the continued volatility. Th these are reasons why investors are, are rightly concerned. And, yeah. and at this point, the, the study did also show that 17% of U.S. adults say they have invested in cryptocurrency. Okay. And that's, that, that sounds about right with, yeah. with what I've heard. So yeah, until there's more regulation, please stay away unless this is money you can absolutely afford to lose. 
Okay, so there are people out there. There's the wealthy people, there's the rich, and there's their super rich. I, I, I love Groucho Marx's uh, comment, uh, and we're going back a long way <laughs> on this, but he said, oh, yeah, yeah, rich people, they're, they're different than me and you. They've got more money. And we're talking about people, okay, you can hire an investment advisor. You, you can you know, be one of the large clients at, at a very well-known firm. But the super rich people, they have something called a family office. That's where basically you own the firm. You, the on, their only reason for existence is to not just invest your money, but to handle your taxes, strategies, um, your, 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 everything you need to do with money. That's what they come into work every day for is to address your needs and your family needs and no one else. Yeah, the goal is to create multi-generational wealth for yeah. these family offices. Oftentimes they have $100 million asset under management minimums. So these are the extremely wealthy families that, that partner with these, these family offices, as they're called. And, and Golden, Goldman Sachs uh, did a study of 166 family offices. Uh, more than 90% of these, by the way, were holding over $500 million yeah. in assets for, for, for their clients. Yeah. Uh, and, and bluntly, the rest of us can probably do a lot better with a lot less money. <laughs> these yeah. people are making bad decisions. Well, and and I, I think a big a big thing that some of these people like to do is go to the club, you know, go visit their friends and say, hey, I got a guy and, and here's what he's doing. Hey, I'm in this hedge fund. Yeah. I'm in things that average people either don't can't invest or have decided not to invest in. And, and they like being able to say things like that. But you look at some of these hedge funds and you know that they're, they're for the most part they're not doing that great. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder if if really really what some of these ultra wealthy individuals and families are are paying for is is bragging rights. Well, yeah, because I think there's it, some truth. Yeah. yeah, it's a talking point about being able to invest in these things that you can't, and 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 even some really speculative stuff out there too, yeah. like, like digital assets and beyond cryptocurrencies. What yeah. we were just talking about. There's the non fungible tokens, NFTs, other electric baloney. These family offices are helping these these individuals and families invest yeah. in these types of well, of strategies. You can get into a whole separate category of investments. Again, that most the average person hasn't hasn't been involved in. Mm -hmm. If you're something called either an accredited or a qualified investor, yeah. and back in the old days, that used to be wow, these are rich people. But you know, if the definition hasn't changed. It's easier and easier to qualify. So, okay, you know, $300,000 a year for a married couple. Income. Very, yeah, the income. Not many people qualify for that, but a million dollars in assets more separate and from more. your house. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's the same number it was at in the 70s. So, you know, what does that mean? Okay, if you're a qualified investor that has over one of those two, either, you know, 300 grand a year in income or over a million dollars in investable assets, um, that means you are now allowed to invest in unregistered unregist securities. These are, these are partnerships. These are things that, you know, don't, they're not traded publicly. They're, yes. they're a completely separate and potentially super risky asset class. And I think that's where some of these people get tripped up. Yeah, I mean, the flip side to it is, candidly, those investments can perform very well because you're taking on more risk. Higher yeah. risk can mean higher reward. But the, these hedge funds that a lot of these uh, families are investing in, uh, they returned a total of 17% over the past five years. Yeah, that's total. total. That's not per year. Yes. That's, yeah. So total, that is not great. And and a lot of these uh, family offices, they've been selling stocks during a bear market. Yeah. Why? If you're investing for the long term, 
do what the rest of us do. Yeah. Focus on the long term. Don't sell when the markets are down. You you buy you buy low and you sell high. The that's hair, that's the goal. The hare and the tortoise. The yeah, tortoise right. always wins. Here's the all worth advice. Don't ever compare yourself to what other investors may be doing because they could be making bigger mistakes than you expect, regardless of how much money they have. Coming up next, the steps to take so you don't have to ever owe anyone any money. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. Imagine a world where you don't owe anybody money. If you're already there, congratulations. If you aren't, not all debts the same. And and joining us today is Al Riddick. Al is the founder and president of Game Time Budgeting. Uh, you know, sometimes we go to the gym to build muscle. He runs a financial fitness company to build wealth right here in Cincinnati. Al once had debt in the uh, six figures. That's all gone. Al, welcome. And I, I've got to ask you, I, I mean, that's incredible that you've gone from six figures of debt to zero. What what made you make that decision to get rid of your debt? Did you just say enough is enough? <laughs> yes, sir. So uh, just to keep a long story very brief, my wife and I, uh, throughout our marriage, we reached a point where we decided that we needed to buy our lives back. And in yeah. order to do that, of course, we had to pay off the people that we owed money to because whether or not you want to admit it, everybody you owe money to, they own a little piece of you, and that does not feel good. So we sat down together and we put together a game plan where we could pay off the student loans, the car payments, the credit card debt, and we even uh, paid off the house as well. So wow. as of December 21st of last year, we celebrated 15 years of debt-free living. Hey, congratulations. Nice job. That's incredible. You know, Thank I, you. I bet there's some people who, who would have a difficult time believing there are any downsides to debt-free living. Care, care to elaborate, Al? So, so for me, one of the first things that I noticed is that you can't or it's very challenging being as carefree as the average American, right? So, so once <laughs> you discipline your mind to live debt-free, I think you spend a little bit more time thinking about the short-term and long-term effects of your financial decisions because money is so top of mind when you choose to live debt-free. Now, I have another uh, example for you as well. So when it comes to the excitement of like a big ticket purchase, like mm -hmm. a new house or a new car, you don't enjoy that excitement as often. So as an example, my wife's car, gentlemen, is 23 years old. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How old is your car, Al? Is, That's the question oh, I've got. I think you you like get a new one every two years. years <laughs> <laughs> so, so before the pandemic hit, we had made a decision that we were going to replace my wife's car. But after the pandemic, yeah. she started working from home. So the car basically just sat there. Mm. But the funny thing about debt-free living is this. We had a budget that we had kind of agreed to uh, years ago when we decided to make the purchase, but now that amount of money has gone up by $10,000 because my wife mm. kind of increased the amount of money that she wanted to spend, but it's really not that big of a deal because I was kind of anticipating that, but when you choose to live debt-free, that extra ten grand that we're going to spend on a car, I think you feel it more because we're talking the one payment plan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you brought up something interesting. You said, my wife and I. You can't do this in a marriage, just one person committing to it. You, you've got to both put your heads together and, and say, 
here's what we're doing. Are you on board? And and this is this is a tough process. Did you have any any issues when you had these discussions about bearing down and getting getting rid of the debt? So because we've been living debt free for so long, I know we've yeah. had issues, but I just don't remember the specific <laughs> issues. But I can tell you this. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime you go into a marriage, you have to think about the fact that you're coming to the table or one spouse is thinking that they are 100% accurate about their thoughts and beliefs as it relates to money. But we forget that the person we're marrying, they may think the same way you do. And obviously, both parties cannot be 100% accurate. So my wife and I threw a series of discussions about the way she felt about money and where, where we wanted to be eventually when we retired, we came to the conclusion that we just had to create a system with money that worked for each of us so that we could feel happy about the result while also sharing in some of the experiences that brought joy to our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton sure of does. sense. You're, you're listening to Simply Money on 55 KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby, and we're we're talking with Al Riddick about how to live a debt-free life, and and Al's living the dream. He he, you know, it's easy to talk this this talk, but Al's lived through it. I, I've got a family member that I helped a number of years back that got into some debt issues, and and I, I what I saw with her was something that I don't think she's by herself. She had no idea of what the balance was on her credit cards. Instead, she only knew what the monthly payment was. Is that a is that a trap a lot of people fall into? That is a very big trap that a lot of people fall into. And one of the things that I often say is that now, now this is how I relate to money. I always say count your money, then give every dollar you earn instructions so it will behave, right? Now what she wasn't doing was actually counting her money because she did not know how much she owed in full to a particular credit card company. And when you don't know the actual amounts of your debt, it's easy to fool yourself into thinking that you are financially more well-off than what you actually yeah. are. Now, I'm sure both of you guys, you know, obviously you're very familiar with what net worth is, you know? So oh, a lot of people forget, you know, when it comes to that debt column, it's not just the payment, it's the total amount of money you owe. And when we don't pay attention to that, we can sometimes give ourselves a false sense of reality regarding our financial well-being. So I'm a big, big proponent of counting every dollar and calculating your net worth at least twice a year so you can determine whether or not you're winning in this financial game that we're all playing on a day-to-day basis. That's great feedback. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, something that we talk about quite a bit on the Simple Money Radio Show is, is credit score. Uh, you know, many mm-hmm. people have been taught that they need some debt to maintain a good credit score. What are your thoughts about that, Al? Yeah, so this is what's funny about that. It's interesting how most people believe something until you experience something that challenges your belief, right? So this is what sure. happened in my case. So I have, I do have a personal credit card and a business credit card, but I pay the balances off every month, Right. So technically, I don't have debt that carries over so far as a balance from month to month. So um, in addition to that, because the house is paid off, my wife and I, we set up like a home equity line of credit that we've never used. But because we know that a lot of like insurance companies, for example, sometimes they look at your credit score to determine your rate. I didn't want to hurt myself by living debt free. So 
I have two credit cards, home equity line of credit, but I have zero debt, right? But my credit score is still over 800. So I'm living proof that you don't have to carry over a balance from month to month to have, have a high credit score. But I do understand when people think that you have to be in a certain amount of debt to have a high credit score because it's something that you've heard so often. Awesome advice from Al Riddick, Al, founder and president of Game Time Budgeting. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. Straight ahead, the new trip tipping trend that has some people, including myself, shaking their heads. So if you've got a financial question you want us to answer, just hit that red button while you're listening on the iHeart app. Just record your question. It does go straight to us. Okay, so let's move on to Ask the Advisor. And Scott in Montgomery, good question. Uh, he wants to know, he says, I know I need to be careful with Roth conversions because it could land me in a higher tax bracket, but I'm told this could trigger a change to my Medicare too. Ruby, that's something a lot of people forget about. Yeah, you were told correctly. Yeah. Um, these Roth conversion strategies can be extraordinarily helpful for your long-term financial plan. You are removing those dollars from consideration from required minimum distributions. You're subjecting those dollars to tax-free gains moving forward. Yeah, but you got to watch yourself. Yeah, you're leaving that tax-free legacy planning behind for children or grandchildren. But yeah, you got to watch yourself. Not yeah. only can you kick yourself into a higher tax bracket, but if you're single and you earn over $200,000 that year, meaning let's say you have no income and you convert over 200000 or you're married and you convert over two hundred fifty k there's an additional 0.9% Medicare tax that you got to pay on those dollars. Well, and and also if you're on Medicare, okay, for the average person, it's what, about 165 bucks a month to pay That's for Medicare? It's going to kick up the premium. Exactly. Your premium can go up. It can go up as high as 560 bucks a month. Yes. Okay. And, and it's not like tax brackets where it's only the last few dollars hit that higher bracket. If you go $1 over the limitation, boom, that's all you're you need there. to do. You're paying the higher premium. So I, I think the quick answer, Scott, is um, talk to your tax advisor before you make a final decision to make sure you don't unintentionally blow into a whole new Medicare. I've bracket. run the numbers in some situations yeah. and it still works. Yeah. So make sure you're working with but, a fiduciary yeah. financial planner to determine that. Bingo. All right, Patton Loveland, does it make sense to have a majority of my portfolio invested in dividend-producing stocks. These are generally, you know, a little bit safer. Um, so, you know, maybe you should do it. What do you think? I mean, there's advisors out there that build their whole practice on this approach because yep. it can create a, a nice stream of income, yeah. tax-favorable. Well, and, and and the argument is, hey, if I can get a 5 or 6% dividend, that's better than I'm getting on CDs, and maybe the stock goes up to boot. Why wouldn't I do that? Well, it's not that simple. Yeah, I mean, there are risks involved with owning individual securities. Yeah. When when we're investing in a diversified ETF that casts a large net around the entire market, the market's not going to go away. Yeah. But technically, an individual security can. Yeah. And even if it's a high dividend stock, they, they can go down. I, I'll give you an example. If you're buying utility stocks, yeah, big, safe companies, mm -hmm. everybody needs electricity, maybe 4 or 5% dividend. But they kind of trade like bonds. And, and what I mean by that is if interest rates go up, that utility stock or that high dividend paying stock may drop, not because of what's going on with the company that you own, but because of interest rates in general. 
So if you're in a rising interest rate environment, be careful. I'll tell you one other area, and I don't want to beat this to death, but uh, I know somebody who was all excited because he, when he came on board, he had a 7% dividend payout uh, on what turned out to be an oil producer, mm. okay? And, and he's thinking it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, when I looked into it, the dividends were based on the amount of oil being pulled out of the ground. And when I looked into it a little bit more, they it's were starting dry. to find it. Yeah, they, they kind of had a pretty good idea of how many more years were remaining for that oil to last to pull out of the ground. Well, if they can't pull oil out of the ground, they can't keep their dividend. Where's and, that 7%? And sure enough, <laughs> that wound up dropping substantially. Obviously, my advice was uh, you might want to think about uh, moving on from this because that 7% dividend today may not be 7% tomorrow. Okay, uh, Danny and Green Township, how often should I consider my risk tolerance when I look at my portfolio? Good question. Sometimes I feel like a 60-40 stock bond split is the answer, but other times I, I wouldn't mind being more aggressive. He says he's 47 years old. Should you change your, your ratios of stocks to bonds. I mean, I don't know a lot about Danny other than his age at this point and his yeah. viewpoint that maybe he's more comfortable taking on more risk, but it's important to, to sit down and identify that sweet spot because there's your tolerance for risk. The markets are going to go up and down when they go down. If you're taking too much risk, yeah. you want to make sure that you're not at a place where you're going to sell yeah. at a loss. Yeah. Then there's also the risk that you need to, to make take to, to meet your financial goals and how much you can afford to take based on your financial situation. Uh, being 47, asking the question about maybe being more aggressive. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being more than 60, 40. A lot of the folks that I work with that are retired have a 60, 40 portfolio. Yeah. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm close to his age and, and I take a lot of risk with my portfolio because I, I'm not, I'm not afraid of the markets. I know they're going to go up in the long term. Short answer is it's always a good idea to sit down and address your risk tolerance. Don't just wait until things are on sale. But but to you do know, so. you know what I'm hearing out of them is, hey, you know, when things are are hot, I I want to get riskier. When things are cold, I I want to get less. That's risky. a good point, Steve. And, and I'm not, you know, you shouldn't be thinking that way. I want to answer this uh, with a, a a point of let's do a financial plan first. Yeah. Do you need seventy percent stock? Do you need eighty percent stock? to achieve your goal, retire, not run out of money. Yeah, okay. Danny needs to sit down with a financial advisor yeah. and have that conversation. And he may very well find 50-50 uh, stocks to bonds, may float his boat and may supply him with plenty of money for the rest of his life. And you don't have to take on risk. Now, then it becomes voluntary. Okay, I, but I want to. I don't want to leave money on the table. Yes, but you know that you don't have to take on more risk than you're comfortable with to achieve your goals. That, that's an ideal situation, I I think, but you, you definitely, I don't think you want to jump around from one uh, mix to another no, just you, because of how you feel about the market. You identify your long-term portfolio and stick with it. When you get older, things adjust. If your financial situation changes, yeah. you can certainly make adjustments, but don't look at the market and say, hey, is now the time to change my my risk tolerance? Yeah, and, and I could see, my, I could see myself planning. five, 10 years from now being in a lower mix, uh, risk tolerance, lower mix uh, stocks to bonds as I age, um, mm -hmm. you know, so it's something you want to address, but I don't think every every couple of months by any stretch. Coming up next, has tipping become a form of blackmail? We'll examine that next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. 
Okay, Ruby. So I, I this this is something I definitely want to talk about because I've got real strong opinions mm-hmm. about that. Just when you thought tipping was out of control, now you got this. You've seen it. I've seen it. Tip screens that are at self-serve locations. No interaction with anybody. Nobody's bringing you a meal. Oh, just one more question, and they flip the screen. What do you think? That's where I draw the line. That's what I think. Bingo. And, yeah. and I've, I grew up working in the service industry. We both did. Yeah, once upon a time, I actually I worked for the New York State Restaurant Association. Like okay. I, I've been in, in, in restaurants for many years in my lifetime. I, because of that, am a big tipper yeah. when I'm working with uh, an individual, a human being. Exactly. Somebody that's offered a service, especially, you know, servers, waitresses. They make nothing. They make nothing. They make their money on tips. Yeah. But when businesses are, are finding a way to put the onus on, on employee pay to the consumer. Yeah. That's a little bit different when it's and that's a, what it boils a, down a, to. a kiosk, a self-service yeah. kiosk where no individual worker is getting yeah. that money. That, that's going to the, the, the business's bottom line. Yeah. I, I, I saw it last Saturday. I went to the FC Cincinnati game. I love going to FC Cincinnati games, grab a drink out of, out of a refrigerator myself. Nobody gets it for me. Walk it over to the register where somebody's standing behind the register. Okay, I need to pay for this. Pull out my credit card. And, oh, one more question, flip of the screen, and they expect a tip. And I've got strong opinions against doing that, but I folded like a cheap suit. Because That's, there are people in line behind me, you know? You don't want to feel they, bad. They're watching. They're judging. Is exactly. This guy tip? Oh, Should you're I one chip? of those guys that doesn't tip. But they didn't do anything. That's the problem I've got. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the self-service uh, that's, uh, again, that's probably where I'll draw the line. I I'm content with the amount of tips that I give when I'm yeah. sitting in a restaurant or yeah. I, I'll even tip, you know, I'll get a bagel. I picked up a bagel on the morning, on the way into, yeah. into work. And, you know, I give a tip. I, I give 20% it, when I, when I eat out, I, I it used to be 15. Now it's 20. Yeah. And a lot of people think it should be closer to 25. I'm not sure I need to go that high, but I appreciate because I was a server all four years of college. Mm-hmm. My wife was, you worked. The best tippers tend to be former servers, exactly. former waiters and waitresses. Yeah. S- Square, that's the technology. They own the technology yeah. for the iPad point of sale machines. And, and they say that tip transactions were up 17% year over year at full service restaurants. But is it going and to that person? S- exactly. And 16% at quick service restaurants. Yeah. And that, that's back in the fourth quarter of 2022. So I don't know. I'm comfortable. If somebody sees me give no tip at a self-service kiosk, I'm not going to let that <laughs> that bother me. You don't let that eat away at you. No. All right. Thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about financial advantages of charitable giving. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial on 55KRC, the talk station.